So we're going to discuss for the rest of the show today, basically, policing issues, police accountability, specifically through the lens of the recently completed trial at the uh, prosecuted by the Civilian Complaint Review Board at the NYPD, the officer Daniel Pantaleo, whose chokehold led to the death of Eric Garner back in 2014 and the slow process to get to the point where that trial was conducted and the judge recommended to Commissioner James O'Neill to fire Pantaleo, which he then did. But there are other aspects of the process to discuss. First today, we'll welcome Jonathan Darsh, the executive director of the CCRB. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So before we get into any specifics here, the, the sort of cliff notes for people of what the CCRB is and does. The CCRB is an independent agency that uh, investigates, mediates, prosecutes complaints of uh, police misconduct by members of the NYPD against civilians. And the categories over which we have jurisdiction are uh, excessive force, abuse of authority, discourtesy, and offensive language. Uh, offensive language is a is a little bit of a tricky Bucket. category. Mm-hmm. So it is a discourtesy plus a protected class. So it could be race, it could be gender, it could be religion, it could be alienage, uh, could be homelessness. Uh, all all of those things uh, fall into the offensive language bucket. And so, if something appears to be a criminal violation by an NYPD officer, you don't touch that? So we have concurrent jurisdiction because an officer may be accused of a crime for conduct that would also fall in our jurisdiction, uh, and we would conduct an independent investigation uh, either contemporaneously or after the criminal investigation. And describe the board. The board, you say independent, the appointees still come through the mayor. So there are 13 members of the board. All are currently appointed by the mayor. Uh, Five are chosen by the mayor. Five are chosen by the city council. uh, And three are – five are designated by the city council and then appointed by the mayor. And three are designated by the police commissioner and then chosen by – appointed by the mayor. Uh, The police commissioner designees can be former members of the NYPD – the civilian members of the board cannot be uh, former members of the NYPD. And your job is? I'm the executive director, so I'm the senior employee of the board. So you have been in that position since May of 2017, I believe. Correct. And when people talk about the CCRB, they have always looked at the public and, and reporters and advocates have often looked at a couple numbers, the number of complaints as maybe an indication of police community relations, the rate of substantiation, how often the police commissioner abides by the board's disciplinary recommendations. Can you characterize over the past couple of years where those numbers have, have gone? Are we seeing complaints up, down, substantiation, that sort of thing? So until uh, 2017, there had been a downward trend in complaints. And then in uh, 2017, there was a slight uptick and in 2018, there was a further uptick in complaints that are within our jurisdiction. Uh, and so far in 2019, we are going to see a, a – it looks like there will be a, another increase. In what do complaints. you think that means? You know, it's very tough to know why these numbers move the way they do. Uh, we've been doing a lot more outreach work. 
we've been uh, trying to go where people who are vulnerable and, and and maybe are more likely to be victims of police misconduct to make sure they know that our agency exists. Uh, but also there, there's been an increased amount of attention to police misconduct. And so people may be more aware of the issue. And uh, so it, it's impossible to, to know what, what exactly is driving the numbers. There's often this discussion around, you know, people don't often use these terms, right? But it's the few bad apples versus the general sense of, Police are corrupt. Police, you know, play by their own rules. And these two sort of polar opposite, uh, you know, characterizations where obviously the truth is somewhere in between, but very often you sort of get people into those those polls. As someone who's seen all this, who's worked at the CCRB even before you were executive director prosecuting, um, how do you describe that to people? If people ask you, so... You know the NYPD in and out. Is it, how you know? Are there systemic problems with misconduct, or is it officers? You know, sort of go rogue here and there, and they need to be held accountable. As you said, it's both. I'll give you a, an example, which was stop and frisk. Uh, when I came to the agency in 2013, the uh, Bloomberg administration had started the process of changing how uh, the police administered stop, question, and frisk in the city of New York. But the general uh, theme of the NYPD under the Bloomberg administration was, on the one hand, they were telling officers to go out and stop people. But on the other hand, they were saying, if you stop someone without the requisite level of suspicion, we are going to discipline you. And that double message created, uh, at best, confusion. So it caused uh, a lot of resistance to the CCRB as the CCRB was finding members of service had acted uh, without the requisite level of suspicion and then committed constitutional violations and substantiated misconduct allegations for stop, question, and frisk conduct that officers resented because they felt they were doing what they were told to do. And uh, when the new administration came in with then-Commissioner Branton and uh, new chair at the CCRB, there was a, a change in, in how things we're going at the department, so the amount of stop, question, and frisk activity uh, appeared to go way down. Uh, and while there's some question about the how how far it went down, it clearly did go down a considerable amount. And then the the board adjusted how it was recommending discipline. And, and because your sense is. This is less about mandates, and this is more about officers not following the the, the orders. No, the, the the CCRB began believing that officers had been doing like because the the instructions given to officers was changing, and it takes time for 
change to take place, that training was more appropriate for the misconduct in some cases, where the year before it, it had been recommending charges and specifications, which is the most serious form of discipline because it felt that it had to get its point across. So talk to us about the Eric Garner case and the CCRB's role. Take us back to where they began and, and some of the steps that were important. So I, I, before I get into that, I just want to say that it's been five years since the, the incident occurred causing the death of Eric Garner, and the CCRB clearly thinks it took too long. And we're looking at our internal procedures to make sure that going forward, if there is unfortunately another tragedy like this, that it does not take five years to reach a resolution. But in this incident, we received a complaint almost immediately after the incident from an eyewitness and commenced an investigation. But before our investigation could really get rolling, we received a hold request from the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. They were conducting a criminal uh, investigation with their grand jury, and they asked us to hold off on our investigation, which had already commenced but hadn't gotten very far. Uh, Do you have any choice there? Yes. Okay. Generally speaking, and I, and I used to be a prosecutor before I went to the CCRB, uh, if there was chance of a criminal prosecution for the incident, you would not want our disciplinary investigation to interfere with it. The Richmond County Grand Jury came back with a no true bill, and we received a hold request from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. And again, we decided to hold off on our investigation because they were conducting a criminal civil rights investigation. And that went on for a long time. And then we received a request from the Department of Justice down in D.C. asking us to hold off on our investigation. And we continued to respect that hold request until 2017 when the board felt that clearly it had gone on too long. And so we marshaled the evidence that we had accumulated uh, over time while not actively investigating the matter presented it to the board, and the board, uh, as has been reported, substantiated two allegations of misconduct against police officer Pantaleo and recommended that he face charges and specifications, which are the most serious form of discipline that the CCRB can recommend a member of service receive. And then the case went to our administrative prosecution unit. There was another year while the NYPD was still respecting the request of the central justice down in D.C. to hold off on, the, on their investigation, on their disciplinary process. Uh, in 2018, in the summer of 2018, we, the department decided to move forward. We filed charges, and that started the process where we could go to trial in this matter. The, you know, the old saying is uh, justice delayed is justice denied, and, and it could apply in a couple ways to this case. Obviously, the delay meant the family of, of Eric Garner and, I suppose, Officer Pantaleo and his colleagues, too, had to wait to find out what was going to happen. But getting into the nuts and bolts of the investigation itself, 
did the delay that you guys um, agreed to because of the holds you received, did that impair the investigation at all? Did it? Did witnesses go to ground who you might have talked to? Were there avenues you might have pursued if you had been able to move more quickly that you were not able to when you finally did decide to pursue it fully? The most difficult uh, impact that the decision to hold off on our investigation had on the prosecution was the expiration of the statute of limitations. Civil rights law section 75 uh, says that you have 18 months to start a disciplinary proceeding from the incident. The only exception to that statute of limitations is if the conduct that is being charged as the disciplinary violation could have been charged as a crime. So, and in order to then prove your disciplinary proceeding, you also have to prove all of the elements of the crime that could have been uh, potentially adjudicated. Correct. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it wasn't that we simply had to prove that police officer Pantaleo uh, used a prohibited chokehold. We also had to prove all the other elements of uh, reckless assault. Uh, So it, it made it more difficult. Fortunately, uh, for the CCRB, we have very skilled prosecutors, uh, and the team that uh, that prosecuted this case to, uh, put on a very strong case and uh, proved all of the elements that it needed to do to uh, convince not only Deputy Commissioner of Trials Rose Maldonado but Police Commissioner O'Neill that uh, misconduct had occurred and that Police Officer Pantaleo should not be a member of the NYPD. So explain then how that impacts the other officers who were on the scene. Uh, the sergeant has agreed to dock 20 vacation days. How did that happen? Mayor de Blasio indicated uh, the other day that the statute of limitations, as you mentioned, uh, would not allow other officers to face discipline. So can you explain explain that? So the officer needs to be served with the charges prior to the period expiring and uh, and it is my unless there's that other condition of the criminality possibility it is my understanding from press reports that uh, sergeant adonis had been served prior to the expiration of the statute of limitations and but nobody else had been correct is that a mistake on the ccrb's part Or, or so I understand you might not be at liberty to say the mistake, but is that something that looking back could have been handled, maybe should have been handled differently? I, I, I think that we need to look very hard at whether we uh, hold, respect prosecutorial holds in such a way that they will prohibit us from moving forward in disciplinary matters because of the statute of limitations. I, I think it caused uh, complications and added difficulties in this matter with regard to police officer Pantaleo that we overcame. Uh, and I think it makes sense for us to to look and see how we will handle these matters in the future. What do you make of the reaction, the backlash from police unions to the decision to fire Officer Pantaleo and 
and also the decision to uh, to press uh, Sergeant Adonis to give up the vacation days. You were a prosecutor, obviously, must have worked with police officers to form cases. Back then, you know about the role they play in the justice process. Do you do you think that backlash is is genuine, and do you think it will have an impact on the operation of the police department, police community relations, the other things that are important to New Yorkers? I. I think the professionalism of the members of the NYPD will overcome their uh, anger, and and things will proceed. When Mayor de Blasio says, um, as a city, we're not going to do this, we wouldn't do this again, we wouldn't um, respect those requests for holds in the same way. Can the, CC, can the CCRB act separately? You, you sort of indicated this, that it would be the CCRB could make some of those different decisions. But when the CCRB did decide to move forward, as you were describing, you still then indicated there was another pause because the NYPD wasn't quite ready. In order to have that administrative trial, do you have to have CCRB ready to prosecute, NYPD ready to hold the trial? Is there any... Would there be anything stopping you from having pushed that even even at that point pushed it faster? I guess what I'm just sort of getting at is the jurisdictional question if the NYPD really has any say there. So they have to provide Judge Maldonado, you know what I mean? So in order to preserve the statute of limitations, the issue is whether the officer is served with the charges and specifications prior to the expiration of the 18 months. Uh we have not had to do that on our own, but I believe we could. Mm-hmm. But then a little bit later in the Pantaleo process, when you were saying that when the CCRB decided to move forward, having served those papers within the 18 months, um, that there was still some more delay based on where the NYPD is at. Is, is that something Correct. you have we control could, over? We could not have... a internal PD disciplinary trial without okay. the department. Okay, interesting. So we just have a couple of minutes left with uh, John Darsh, who is the executive director of the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And I'm curious, there are several um, ideas, proposals for the CCRB in the ballot questions that will be put to voters in November around reforming the charter. Too many to describe uh, quickly now, but what's your general feeling about those? Do you Are those, are those powers that will be helpful to the CCRB? Did you hope that you would get, get more? <laughs> so I think there are, there are really five. So I'm going to go through them because the law department has told us we cannot mm-hmm. uh, promote it. Like we can't say vote for this because it's going to be the greatest thing. <laughs> but we can tell people what they are. So uh, it will add a category to our jurisdiction of false official statements made to the CCRB while we are investigating a matter. Uh, it will set the CCRB's headcount as a percentage of the NYPD's uniformed uh, headcount. It will uh, mandate disclosure of certain information to the CCRB uh, prior to the department uh, acting on non-APU disciplinary recommendations. It will give me, as the executive director, the power to sign subpoenas, which sounds minor, but uh, most of those subpoenas are for uh, 
are for surveillance video in places that often record over video. So the faster we mm. can issue those subpoenas and get video in it makes our investigation so much more effective. We'll spend some time uh, at an, on another show getting even further into the, what's going to be on the ballot in November, but that's a good preview. I'll get you out of here on one more question, which is to zoom back out from your perch. Um, is there something specific about policing in New York City, the way the police department is run, um, that you think would make a significant shift in what comes to the CCRB? Is there something that you know, the CCRB, even the board, really wants to see from the police department to, you know, the CCRB winds up uh, investigating, prosecuting, doing disciplinary proceedings, but to prevent those. Is there something you, th- you know, the board or, or you yourself believes needs to happen? So it might not be exactly what you're asking, but potty-worn camera footage is going to revolutionize civilian oversight all across this country, but especially in New York City. And what we've seen is, as the body-worn cameras have spread across the department, we're getting more and more of our uh, cases that have body-worn camera footage. And when we get that footage, because it also has audio in many cases, we're able to make determinations on the merits of of, uh, our investigations far more frequently than we used to in the past. And, uh, you know, right now it's too soon to give you like facts okay. and figures on it. But I think that's that's where uh, that's where the future lies for civilian oversight in this city of the NYPD. And and we need to make sure that the CCRB has fast and independent access to body worn. Mm, that's a key piece. But we can't we can't discuss it now. But but that is a very interesting jumping off point for another discussion. Jonathan Darsh from the CCRB, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to come down, guys. I appreciate it. And we'll be right back here on WBAI. You're listening to Max and Murphy here on WBAI, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy of City Limits. We just spoke with Jonathan Darsh, the executive director of the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And we're now going to be joined by our second guest. Yes, joining us on the phone now is Eugene O'Donnell. He is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is a veteran, former NYPD officer, as well as a former prosecutor in the Queens and Brooklyn District Attorney offices. Professor O'Donnell, welcome to Max and Murphy. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us. And why don't we get right into what is your reaction or what has been your reaction to the decisions in the Eric Garner case that we've learned about in the past couple weeks? Well, I'll leave Garner alone for the moment, but de Blasio's uh, comment that it will never happen again is, is an absurd comment by somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, nobody can tell you it's not going to happen again. The police job is uh, is unscripted. It's improvisational, and the police are constantly trying to, uh, when they get into those situations, they're trying to um, put people in custody as effectively as they can. Minimal training, minimal pre-screening to get on the job. Nobody's being screened in terms of their physicality. The vast majority of police people have, would be would have very average physical skills, and they do the very best they can. It's simply nobody could promise that in a potential life and death battle that there wouldn't be some contact with somebody's neck in that situation. Obviously, the the fault here, the great large fault in this situation, lies with the mayor, to, who to this day 
has never gone to the podium like he should have on day one and said, this is on me. Never said that. Should have, but hasn't. Why was it on him? Because it's his police department, and he continues to this day to act like he's, an, he's some sort of activist instead of the chief executive of the city. Uh, and he continues to act like a bystander to this very day uh, you know, on this topic. Let me ask you the point you made about the uh, you know the physical uh, aptitude of officers and how that might lead to different kinds of confrontations. Is that the minimal screening you talked about? The minimal training has that always been the case, or is that a a new problem for the department? It's a group of civilians. Take a look at them. Do they look like Navy SEALs? They're ordinary people with very average skills. Uh, many of them have never probably been in a physical confrontation. Many of them have probably never been punched. Uh, and then you're putting them out into frontline confrontational stuff. Do you, I think the city doesn't want them to be thrown heavily into adversarial confrontational fighting, but you can't have it both ways. I mean, you can't say uh, there's some sort of, uh, you know, force of people that are going out to hurt people. Uh, you know, it, 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 they're so skilled at that, that that's totally bogus. The department itself had to acknowledge that the, most of these officers don't have any skills in terms of physically uh, interacting with people. They have the most basic skills imaginable. Uh, the job is, the, the police job is premised on the idea that the cops will, with minimal skills, be thrown into these situations. They'll mostly work out. Uh, if the cops act within some sort of reason, the department will have their back. Uh, that has collapsed now. That, that no longer exists. So we're, we're seeing the, the, the situation that we're seeing with the unions and with the with the sentiment of the officers in the job, we're also seeing not only in New York, but this is also a harbinger of national issues. Nobody's going near police work at this moment. You can't get people near this job. So, say a little bit more about um, the Pantaleo case. Um, I guess on one hand, um, do you think that Daniel Pantaleo made? mistakes that day that should have cost him his place on the police force? I, I don't want to revisit it because I, I think it's a different, the people uh, police business will see this totally differently. We'll have a totally different perspective on this than, than ordinary people, that, that civilians. And, but if you break this uh, event down, uh, that, that again, the police, the police will, will, will have a, will, will have a different read on this. Uh, they're, they're, uh, the, the good news is that the city is safe, and this will this particular event will probably not reoccur because the enforcement has been tapered properly, and we're going to things like civil summonses, which makes sense. But nobody can promise, uh, you know, there couldn't be a reoccurrence of this. So you, so you, that what you just said there confuses me a little bit because some of the things I've read from you indicate you think that the pendulum is swinging too far in the direction of reform. Uh, that no, there, don't, 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 no? don't go there. It's, no, we just, you just had a CCRB guy on. CCRB needs to come clean and admit that there's really not a whole lot going on at CCRB. Let them come clean. Let them show their worst cases. Let them show the 50 or 100 worst cases they purport to show. Uh, the, 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 it's not an issue of reform. It's an issue of public safety in some cases. It's an issue of silencing communities. It's an issue of people that continuously complain about issues that don't have any voice. It's five million, a call, five million calls a year to NYPD and the police acting as their surrogates. De Blasio went out and said 
basically the cops were marauders going through communities harassing people, and he debunked his own bunk by, by stopping that. Police were not doing that on their own volition. They were not in these communities on their own volition. That was being done pursuant to political decisions that were made, and he has curtailed that now. Now, that has consequences. That has collateral consequences that the city has to come four square with. And the people that are most affected by that don't get heard. You have an elite that captures this conversation, and they completely, totally silence the issue of fear, which is palpable and real in at least four of the boroughs of the city, or three of the boroughs of the city. You would have a very serious level of fear that's involved, and you have a police force that's basically paralyzed. So before people pin a medal on themselves for raiding in the police, let's go out to communities and talk to people and get into touch with them and hear what they really have to say instead of this, this, this mid-Manhattan elitist conversation driven by, by people that are totally disconnected. And even though we have a super safe city, you take the, the, the three, four, five hundred worst problematic streets in the city, you've got a lot of issues in those streets. And this is a recipe for, that, for those issues that are percolating to be, annoyed, to be ignored. Go ahead. One of the uh, topics that people have started talking about, Professor, since uh, the decision to fire Pantaleo was was rendered is the other officers who were at the scene and their conduct in the moments after Garner went down and and indicated some trouble breathing, uh, indicated a lot of trouble breathing. Uh, And I'm curious, as someone who, you know, your day job is to instruct potential future police officers or current police officers Many of them could potentially find themselves in a situation like that. What do you think those officers should have done? When you look at that video, what do you what do you see that you approve of? What do you see that you think was problematic? And what do you think uh, we can take away from, from that? Because I think a lot of civilians now are looking beyond Pantaleo to other folks who are on the scene and what they did or didn't do. Well, again, let's remind everybody that cameras are running 24-7 in the city of New York, and there's been absolutely, virtually no controversial videos in the last several years. Okay, let's remind everybody of that. And if there were, they'd be. And, and the New York Times had to go to Fresno last week to get a cop punching somebody. That's how that's how short they are of derogatory information. And they've been on the case. New York Times is obsessed with the police. They have. They have. They have. They have. They're deranged about the police they they've lost their minds well, about the police their editorial board you're gonna you're gonna and, push us into defending our uh, our journalistic <laughs> colleagues well, somebody but anyway. somebody should say it but some of their editorial board is deranged their coverage on issues like stop and frisk how much space do they have to do all the municipal issues that we have that are percolating in the city and how much of that space have they devoted time and time again to these particular narrow issues uncontextualized and never talking about crime and disorder and the fear that people have and victims and the racial dynamics of people who get shot, which are almost all minority so, people. The New York Times has no time to write that story ever. And the Red Sword Board has not. And by the way, they don't endorse official, uh, they don't endorse any kind of law enforcement. They constantly delegitimize law enforcement. They're totally disconnected from, from neighborhoods. Oh, well, that's well, the truth. Well, why don't we say it? Well, I, I'm not here to litigate the New York Times editorial page, but um, as you indicated, you know the city is exceedingly safe. And and uh, I wanted to come back to your comment about some of the most dangerous corridors or areas of the city where there's problems. But um, 
is there is there anything else you wanted to say sort of on the subject of the officers on the scene Jarrett's question about you know if you're teaching uh, current or future officers who are not necessarily the Daniel Pantaleo in that scene but others nearby yeah well again it's we're, we're, all of these things are unscripted and uh, the, the, the reality here is as far as I can tell there was no malicious intent to hurt this man the man died they scrambled they probably thought of self-protection which is not not admirable but is very human uh, but the truth is, again, you won't see this rerun. The, the larger question is, you won't see anything rerun. That's the that's the larger question. Is so, it is so, it the duty of of other officers nearby if someone seems in distress like that? Is is it their duty to say, you know, assess the scene and say, wait a second, you know, this person's not armed. We need to check on his medical condition. Is that? The New York City Police Department has a rule book that is larger than War and Peace. Okay, not, there's not a single person who can tell you every rule in that rule book. Okay, many of them are inconsistent. Many of them don't make sense. The cops break the rules every single day to get the job done. The department knows that. So if you want to know how it's boiling outrage, it's because the department has an absolutely unworkable set of uh, guidelines that are there to protect the department. Okay, that's that's what they're there to do. And the chokehold rule is one good example. Even, by the way, the U.K. police have no such rule, and, and they have a tremendous uh, 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 history of restraint, and they don't deal with the gun violence that, mm-hmm. that's so endemic in our society. So the, the, you know, the, the, the New York City Police Department, can come, remember with this arrest, to this day, you've never heard the police department say how this arrest should have been done. Okay? They've never said by the numbers how this arrest should be done. The the NYPD and, and the commissioner himself, by the way, has said he he doesn't even know how to make this arrest. It's I mean, that's part, yeah, that's part of what we're interested in your take that's what on. He said, right? Yeah, but right, that's what he said, right? Mm-hmm. But what they can do ex post facto, when there's an outcome, they can condemn the officer, and that's what they did in this case. So, if you want to know why the police the police department is at boiling temperature, that's it. And obviously, I appreciate the chance to come on and talk to you guys. We've got to try to unite people and have conversations that are, that are somewhat centered. Otherwise, you have people, you know, you have this, this, this rhetoric on both sides. It's, yeah, that's, that's how we open the show. Think, some people must think the cops don't follow this. There's definitely an elitism here. You know, these are working-class cops. Most of them are paying their bills. They're, they're not, you know, the idea that they're out there, they're some sort of warriors. They're not. Most of these people are just trying to get through the day now. Okay? And the, the elite thought they weren't keeping score. You could disrespect them and run them into the ground. You could, you could, you, you could treat them ab- abysmally, and, and you could call them murderers. And, and the Klan, the New York City Police Department, one of the most rest- restrained police departments in the United States, 40 shootings a year, uh, one use of force out of 100. You're going to demonize that police department? That's a disgrace, and that uh, that's insane. And the people that are going to pay the price for that, and our, I guarantee you tonight paying the price for that are people living in the most forlorn parts of the city okay, who can't get any kind of attention to percolating issues that they have been complaining about for years, probably in some cases. Yeah, do you expect the you know, there's, a, there's a report that there's been a slowdown in arrests and summonses, and obviously the suspicion is that that is a reaction to the Pantaleo decision. Do you expect that to persist? Do you think it will have 
an impact or will cops say, you know, it's my job to, to do this job and I'm going to get back to doing it? Well, the, the, the cheerleader of this is de Blasio, who, is, who has damaged policing across the country. Uh, he's, he, he, has, he has orchestrated this, by, again, by pretending he still talks in we, right? We're going to get justice. Like, he's not the mayor. Okay? So he has, he has created this, and there's been an absolute epic collapse of interest in the police profession. He, he's the national poster person for that, okay, with his irresponsible uh, comments and conduct. And, and again, this claim that the police were like this dragon that had to be slain. He had to come in and he had to courageously take on the police. What a joke. All you have to do in a quasi-military is that the NYP just tell them not to do it, and they don't do it. And the proof is in the pudding. The problem, Mr. de Blasio, is, is the people in the neighborhoods. What about those poor people? Okay? And if you don't believe, for sure, at least some one person lost their life. And I'm not a big endorser at all. I'm a critic of broken windows and promiscuous stop and frisk. But let's put it on the table. Some people died when the, when the police had been curtailed. When the police do not take guns off the street, somebody will lose their life. And it will not be one of the elite critics of the police department or their children. It'll be somebody in, one, it'll be somebody in about like 15 or 20 precincts that you could name. There'll be at least one person who died and probably dozens have died as a result of curtail, and, and dozens more will die now that the police don't want to get out of their car and they just want to drive by. And this is, and of course, it's not, that's not lethal in our city, but I was just in Chicago. Every Sunday night, you could say, okay, there's seven African-American kids here in Chicago on Sunday night, but I'm not going to be here next Sunday night. Okay? That police department has completely collapsed. Okay? It's a little less problematic in our city because we have an apartheid justice system where people can buy their own security and their own safety. They have their doorman, they have their Uber, they never have to go into the street if they don't like, they don't have to take out a borough subways, they don't have to be out in places where everybody's off the street at night, they so don't I th- have to deal with that. So I think uh, a lot of the metrics don't necessarily match up with what you're saying about, you know, I mean, if, if murders have continued to trend down over the course of this administration, I mean, it's obviously a little bit difficult to prove out your, your, your point there because we, you know, we can't really prove that hypothetical scenario. Um, but Jared's got one last. No, let me correct you. So you take a gun off somebody in Brooklyn North, that gun very likely will be used to kill somebody. Okay. You take a couple hundred of them off, street in Brooklyn North, one of those guns will be used to kill somebody. So you, you, this is not a cost-free analysis where the mayor is a hero because he's, he has thwarted the police who are this danger to society. They have to be reined in. That's coming at a cost. We won't even talk about the quality of life costs and, and the things that are allowed in communities in, in Brooklyn and the Bronx that would never be tolerated in Park Slope, Brooklyn Heights, the east uh, side of Manhattan, the west side of Manhattan. They'd be up in arms. And again, if, if communities should be allowed to have their own beat, their own rhythm, their own life, whatever they want. But if somebody in Brooklyn North says, I don't want disorder on my street, there is entitled to not have disorder in the street as somebody living on Billionaires Row in Manhattan. Yeah, I just don't I don't I don't know if that's that's what's happening. But go ahead, Jared. Uh, so Professor yeah. O'Donnell, just we have about a minute left. I wanted to ask quickly, what do you think about the role of the unions in this? Uh, Pat Lynch and Ed Mullins, are they are they representing their membership zealously and truthfully, or are they helping to kind of amplify the polarization here because you know the, uh, you've criticized the mayor's rhetoric or or the failures of it and I wonder what you think of the rhetoric coming from the police unions. 
Well, I think it's interesting that the Manhattan Institute went into the near coast yesterday to say the police are still doing their job. The Manhattan Institute is the, is the organization that got this all started okay, with, with broken windows. The cops were never big believers in broken windows. Manhattan Institute has a very bad track record of race relations, right? But there they are bashing the union. Interesting. So, so this is a union-hating institution that got broken windows going. It's kind of there's some there's some strange bedfellows in all of this. That, yes, that is very, so the union. The, the union is absolutely, uh, I, I think, I, I think channeling. And I mean, you do have to also remember there are. Uh, this is mostly about the Blasio, and some of it has to do with labor relations. Also, there's issues about the contract and issues mm-hmm, about sure. yeah, uh, always their comparability, their pay comparability. But it's it, it's. There's some very unhappy people walking around in police uniforms. Professor, Again, saying, look, quit. You don't like it. You know, we got a recruitment crisis. So. Professor Eugene O'Donnell of John Jay, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it, and uh, we hope to have you back on Max and Murphy. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Thanks thank for you. joining us. Well, that brings us to the end of a action-packed edition. I'm Max and Murphy. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. We need a second hour. We do need a petition. Please start (laughs) calling in for a second hour. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News. Join us again next week. Follow us at citylimits.org and gothamgazette.com in the interim. And until next week, have a great week in the greatest city in the world.